What's in a recipe? Sure, you might find stuff like sugar and salt, but break most recipes down and you'll also find they're steeped in family history and emotion. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're taking a peek inside three very different cookbooks, including one that's quite novel, literally speaking. It's called The Recipe Club, a tale of food and friendship. The authors are with me now in the studio. They're Brooklynites Andrea Israel and Nancy Garfinkel. Good morning to both of you. Hi. Hi. This book is one part novel, one part cookbook. How did the idea come about? We had found some old recipes that had been sent to us in childhood. Each of us had letters that we'd found from childhood friends. And we talked and we said, you know what? Wouldn't it be fun to really follow the lives of two women who write to each other their entire lives with this thread of food throughout? And we decided to do that. So I talked to Nancy and we decided to each take a character originally, which we did. And we wrote to each other. And then from there, we had a first draft, and we threw that out, and we then rewrote it, and that's how we gave birth to our book. The story is largely told through the letters and emails of the two main characters, Lily and Val. Now, you two actually wrote to each other and then put them into the book? That's how we started. We started with an exchange of letters, as Andy just said. And uh, as we did our character development, we got to know them a little bit better, we found a way to kind of toss out some of the material and reframe it in a more focused way. But by that time, we had gotten to know who the characters were. They kind of revealed themselves to us as in the process of writing letters. And it just went from there. I find that pretty fascinating. So you did not know what was coming We had no idea. It was so much fun because Nancy would write to me and she'd say in her character, I can't believe you did that. And I would think, okay, what did I do? And then I'd have to invent what I did and then she'd have to respond to that. And she didn't know what was coming. So it was really, really fun. So did you become those characters then? I, I would say that in the way that you do when you're writing anything, you become a character. But I think the character sort of takes over is what happens. The, the character has a life of its own. And so many times Lily or Val would do things and the two of us would look at each other and we'd say, oh, my God, why did they do that? <laughs> you know, what, what a crazy girl. You know, what, what a little nut job. <laughs> and why did she do that? But it's, it's the mystery of writing and it's the beauty of writing that the characters reveal themselves to you as they want to. And it's up to us to listen. There's a lot of trust involved. You have to really believe in the character and, and let them go where they want to go. And then it, what was fun, doing this is in tandem. That's what's unusual about this is that you do that on your own, and that's one thing. But to both have to follow this and trust these two characters was a different experience. And it was really great because we discovered that we think alike a lot unexpectedly. So that it was a partnership that grew along with the writing that was really wonderful. And how do you two know each other? We met cute. <laughs> we met when I was selling my apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and I decided to sell it myself, and Andy answered my ad, and she and her partner came over and looked around, and we became friendly and started talking about what we each did for a living. We both love writing fiction, and we were both writers professionally, and they decided to buy the apartment, and we kind of you know, shook hands and said, okay, great, and then they left, and I was left in, in the apartment I was selling with my soon-to-be husband, and he said, they're fantastic. I love them. Let's not sell the apartment to them. I said, why? He said, let's just be friends. <laughs> you, know, you know, how can you possibly, you know, do a real estate deal and remain friends? I said, oh, we can do it, and we did it. Living proof. Here you are. Absolutely. And well, we went further from that, because then about a year later, my partner and I decided we wanted to have a child, and I got pregnant, and I, Nancy had told me that at some point in her life, she had helped somebody 
um, as a birth coach. So we dared to ask her, would you do that with us? And she did. So not only we survived the real estate deal, then we brought a child into the world. And from there, we thought, all right, let's write a book. I mean, how hard can that be after the, <laughs> the other things? So, th- so we did that. I don't want to make any assumptions as to who's who in the book, but Lily does have a child in the end. So were you Lily? We were both each characters. You know, that's the funny thing. And, and so, no, I mean, only in that I had the experience of actually having a child come out of me. But other than that, you know, no, actually, it, we really wrote the two characters together, Every, ultimately. Everybody asks us who's yeah. Lily and who's Val, and the answer is both and neither. And the funny thing is that we've had such reactions to these characters. They're, we went down to Houston recently and did a recipe club meeting, which we're doing related to the book. We're meeting with people, readers of the book and other people who are gathering to tell their own stories about food and friendship. And we went down to Houston, and we had this meeting where these women got into almost a fight about why Lily did what she did to Val or why Val did what she did. How could they behave like this? Oh, my goodness. And it was hysterically funny. So it's very interesting to see how these characters are coming to life. Most of my fondest memories revolve around food, sharing meals with family, baking in the kitchen with my grandmother, helping to make her recipes. Why do you think we connect so much with food? Food food is, is like a transcendent and shared commonality that if you're human, you must eat. And so we we all eat food, and we tend to eat in groups, in family structures. So we feed each other. And Everybody shares this. There's, there's nobody who's not been fed something by someone else. There's no one who's never fed someone. And we eat alone. We eat with people. And so it's a shared human experience. It's, it's, it's as basic as breathing. We're finding that in, in these recipe club meetings that people think they're just telling stories to us about how they made baked Alaska or how they made cookies or something. But what comes out underneath that is a tremendously moving story about family, whether it's a fond memory like you just said of baking with your grandmother or a tortured memory of sitting for your last meal with your husband before your marriage breaks up. You know, there's, there's a range. And the thing that's in the book, and I think why it's resonating so much, is that Food is complicated. It's the ingredients in a recipe and the ingredients in your emotional life are very complicated, and people are finding ways to explain all of that through these food stories. And I think that's what's very cool about what we're we're finding in this. We recently had a recipe club meeting in New York, and one of the participants afterwards said this was like going to a dinner party with group therapy in it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very emotional sharing experience and a communal experience. We've had some examples. We had a young woman join us this past weekend, and she told a story about how she went, um, she was in a miserable point in her life in college where she really was ready to give up everything and leave. She was unhappy and ready to, she was in theater and she was ready to move to Moscow to study theater. She was wanted to leave everything behind. And on the eve of leaving, she met what she didn't know yet was to be her future husband. And he called her the next morning and said, come apple picking with me. And she said, oh, no, I'm leaving. Oh. And then he convinced her. And she went. And they had their first kiss underneath an apple tree. It was a lovely moment. And from that date on, they've been making apple cake together. And she burst into tears telling us this recipe and, and the story because it was so meaningful. And, and, and then everyone in the group started crying. <laughs> it was really great. She, she calls it appleversary cake. The names of the recipes in the book play a big part they tell a lot about the characters and how they're feeling. For instance, we have Conspiracy Apple Pie, Wash Away the Blues, Berry Cobbler, Home of My Own Hamburger, and Green-Eyed Green Beans. All of the recipes are extensions of the narrative of the book, so they're related to stories and events that are happening in each character's lives. 
the recipes, you know, sort of come out of those, you know, written experiences, and they're literary in that respect. But then they became developed and were developed by a professional food writer, Melissa Clark, who writes for the New York Times, and she joined us in this effort of making recipes that are correct in terms of era and age appropriateness. So none of the recipes from, say, 1962 will have ingredients that we use today. Like, you know, or you won't find arugula. You'll find iceberg lettuce, that kind of thing. Right. Lillian Val are growing up Lily through the 60s. growing up through the 60s, yeah. So all of the the recipes have those kind of names that are attached to their experience in the book. So these are all original recipes. They are. Yes. And they're, they're original recipes, and they're really delicious. <laughs> they're great. But the, the naming of them was great fun because we would write a letter to each other and then have to come up with something that, that conveyed what the letter was about, and that was fun. At least some of the recipes in the book come from Lily's mom's friends. Mm-hmm. And I say friends in quotes because Lily's mom... Friends with benefits. Really. Yes. I was going to say she liked the gentleman. <laughs> yes. It seemed to me, though, when she was a kid, she didn't necessarily realize that these friends were Correct. really boyfriends, and her mom was married. Mm-hmm. That was interesting and fun to play with because, right, her mother is in the theater, and she is a designer, and she's out there. She's she, Each character is complicated, and that's also why people are, are responding to the book. There isn't anybody who's all good or all bad, and... So Lily comes from this family where her father is a psychiatrist of great repute and very stern and rather unloving with her for the most part. And her mother is this flamboyant, crazy woman who goes about, yeah, she likes the men. And she jumps from, like, the choreographer to the director of her show, basically. But when she's, when Lily's little, these men come into her life as friends of her mom, yes. and then But, but she's aware of it on some level. So you always have this sort of subliminal psychological thing going on. That's where we get Jacques' fancy meatloaf. Exactly. All of those men coming from different places around the world also gave us access to having a legitimate recipe from someplace foreign. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was a big help to us. Now, you two published this book on your own, right? That's a story in itself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After... Uh, having this real estate deal and having Andy's baby and writing the book, we said, okay, what's next? <laughs> so we decided to form a publishing company that we named Polhemus Press, named for the block on which that building that we each lived in. It's been a, an amazing adventure because it was, it's was. it been a window into the publishing world and, and what, you know, we decided we wanted a book that looked a certain way. We loved it the way we conceived of it. And we knew that in this in the era in which we're in and with the financial difficulties everyone's having, nobody was probably going to go for what we wanted. So we created what we consider to be a piece of art in a way because it's for color and every recipe was highly designed. We worked with a brilliant designer. We didn't want it to be a boring, you know, just something people toss aside. This is something you can keep. Partly you can keep it because it is a recipe book. So after you finish reading it, it just stays around for years, you know, as a cookbook. But it's also this beautiful object to handle and to hold. We wanted to create something that was sort of as beautiful to touch and feel. It has really beautiful paper. So what's next for you two? Will Lily and Val come back in another book? I think they Ta-da. will because yeah, because we keep <laughs> hearing from people who say want it to, and we actually have a whole idea. Yes, so they will. Yes, definitely. they'll be back. Yeah. And I'm sure maybe at some point we'll see the Lily and Val television show. It's very likely. <laughs> we've already thought about that, yes. <laughs> the book is The Recipe Club, A Tale of Food and Friendship. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you Thank so you. much, George. 
The Recipe Club is out now. Andrea Israel and Nancy Garfinkel are the authors. You can learn more about them and their book at therecipeclubbook.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. From Andrea and Nancy, we turn to Joan and Barbara. They're two women who've been writing about crafts, fashion, and anything to do with your home. But now they've tackled the cooks of New York. Not literally, of course. They've taken recipes from some of the most renowned chefs in New York City and broken those recipes down so you can recreate those meals at home. Joan Krellenstein and Barbara Winkler recently dropped by our studios to talk about their book, New York Cooks. Hello, Joan. Hello. And hello, Barbara. Hi. There are 100 recipes in this book. They are broken down into seven different categories, though, right? Yes, they are. Um, There's everything from Italian and French to New American and urban country And there's a couple of others in there, specialty cuisines and um, classic American. Urban country. Now, there's an oxymoron, right? There is. And yet, with this new sort of rise in the local foods movement, it's everything sort of back to nature. So even if you live in New York City, you shop at the green market. So there is sort of a rise in people really wanting to get back to nature, even if they're living in, you know, the urban jungle. Now, there are 100 recipes in the book, as we mentioned, but how many chefs are featured? There are 37 chefs. We could quickly count. Yes, we could go through the book. (laughs) And they're also cooking for a lot of people. They are, and that was one of the challenges in the book, was to um, work with the chefs to make sure that we were getting recipes that were doable at home um, that could be recreated by the home cook who isn't going to be serving 400 people. (laughs) How did you go about choosing the chefs? We sort of did a few things. Of course, we went and looked at the New York Times and Time Out and Zagat's to kind of come up with, with a master list. And then we also tried to get kind of all price levels in there and get a real diversity of restaurants. And and that actually was the fun part because New York, as you know, has every kind of food you could ever want at any time of day. And we definitely wanted to capture sort of what was going on at this moment. So we have some very new young chefs and then we have, you know, some more uh, venerable and uh, chefs who've been around for, for quite a while. Did you create a master list and then go into these restaurants undercover and sample dishes from the menu? We did a couple of things. We went to the restaurants. We talked to the chefs. We even wanted some other chefs, but many of them were writing their own books, and many of them were opening restaurants. So it was kind of, it evolved did any chefs give you a hard time about giving up their recipes? No, not at all. No, not at all. And, that, and as a matter of fact, it was a little surprising. But by and large, I would have to say the generosity of spirit. And maybe that's just part of being a chef is that you're, you know, you want to be welcoming. But we really did not have a problem with people not wanting to have their recipes in the book. They were tremendously cooperative and You know, in a few cases, we would get recipes that sort of overlapped, and we'd have to go back to a chef and say, oh, excuse me, this is the uh, third pork belly recipe that we have. But did that chef then say, well, mine is better? 
Well, of course they said that, but um, you know, then they sort of would come up with something else, and and they were really terrific to work with. And I think, as Joan said, they're in the business of hospitality, and that really came through in working with them. Were you looking for simplicity in these recipes, or was that not a factor? No, I. And as you'll see if you go through the book, some of the. Recipes are very complicated. So you don't have to be classically trained, but what is your advice for someone like myself, who pretty much is all thumbs in the kitchen, might be intimidated by the recipes in the book? Well, there's really no reason to be. There are recipes, and you do have to read through, of course, that are very, uh, quite simple. There are some scallops that are very easy to make. They only take a few minutes to uh, pan sear. If you don't like the the way the chef has served it, you can pick a different vegetable. But there are quite a few things in the book that are very simple and very quick. Yes, the blood orange and red onion salad seems very simple. I look forward to making that one. It's beautiful, too. How important is presentation when serving a meal? Well, I think it's critical in the restaurant. Um, I think we can have a little bit more latitude (laughs) at home. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the way the food looks is the first part of the experience, the way it looks, the way it smells, and uh, then you get the taste after that. So it is. It is important to have the plate look nice. Chef Jeffrey Zakarian of town at the Chambers Hotel had a great quote in the book. He says his formula is 80% reality, 20% fantasy. Jeffrey is an amazing, amazing guy, and um, he also said something very interesting. He gets his inspiration from a lot of old, even antique cookbooks, and his feeling is that great food has been around forever, and you can look at these books and be inspired, and then you you take the 80% reality, and you fluff it up a little bit, and, and add an embellishment or two, and there you have it. There's another great quote in the book from Carmen Quagliata of the Union Square Cafe, and he says, he tastes the recipe in his mind first, then tools around with the ingredients. How great is that? It is. It's funny. The chefs all have different ways of developing uh, their recipes. Some of them start with an ingredient and and think, well, what can I do with this and, and build around it. Um, and then one of the chefs, and you can maybe remind me, draws it. Oh, yeah. Andy at Casamono. Well, he he was an engineer, and he worked for GE, and he would design. So when he thinks about a recipe, he sketches it out. He sort of draws a picture and looks at it in terms of size and shape and texture and I don't understand it at all. And our only question to him was, don't send us the drawing, Andy. Just send us the words. (laughs) That's pretty hardcore. (laughs) It's it's really interesting. But they all get inspired in completely different ways. Did you notice, though, a common theme as to what drove these people into the kitchen in the first place, what inspired them to become chefs? I think a lot of them grew up in households where mom or dad or grandma cooked. So for a lot of them, it started at a young age. And then, of course, there are the ones who switched careers, you know, midway, like like Joe at um, Bridge Bridge Cafe. Cafe. Yes. Um, There were quite a few people who came to it either after going to school for something completely different or even a little bit later in life. And I think 
one of the key repeating themes we heard from those people was just a sense of wanting to of being very nurturing of wanting to give and wanting to share wanting to take care of people and it really comes out in sort of the hominess of their food and the the warmth of their restaurants do you each have a favorite recipe in the book that's like choosing your favorite child. We can't. <laughs> um, and, you know, there is the seasonality issue. So, it, you know, it depends on the day. There's a recipe in there. I think it's for meatball skewers. They look absolutely delicious. The photo that you have in there. Wow. The photography in the book, which for which we can take no credit, um, was truly amazing. Um, and the food really does look spectacular. And, of course, it is and does taste spectacular. But the photography really conveys it. How important is the preparation, and by that I mean going to the store and making sure you get the finest and freshest ingredients when you're making these meals? All all the chefs definitely said that was the key to any dish, whether you were making a sandwich or a salad or a five-course meal for 100 people. And what would you say are the must-have gadgets to have in your kitchen to prepare these recipes? You know, so many of them said a wooden spoon. What could be simpler than that? And they're chef's knives. I mean, they, well, they, the can't, <laughs> they can't live without their favorite knives. The microplane was a big, uh, the Vitamix blender. Improvisation, of course, is always key, though, right? Yes, absolutely. Make use of what you have. You know, I actually was sort of surprised that more chefs didn't name really expensive gadgets. It's the spoon, the knife, a spatula. And you've got it. Your basics. Yep. Absolutely. I always find it a bit embarrassing when I can't pronounce the items on the menu. And there are some foods in the book here that I couldn't pronounce. For instance, F-O-O-U-L. Fool. Fool. It is fool. Fool. The U threw me off. What is that? Yeah, it was teasing you because, you know, if you said fool, were you a fool to say fool? Absolutely. (laughs) What is fool? Like a Middle Eastern stew, uh, mostly of beans and spices. There's another recipe in the book uh, for roasted beets with almond scordalia. Now, I got the roasted beets, but I didn't get the scordalia. The scordalia is a potato-based kind of dip, very, very popular in Greece. And the particular recipe that we give is a little different because it, even though it has the potatoes in it, it has the beets and the almonds... Are these relatively inexpensive recipes to prepare? Not necessarily, unfortunately. Um, some are and, and some aren't. Um, you know, filet is, is a filet. But I think there is everything up and down the scale. Yeah, and, and I think a good example of that, there's a oven-roasted quail, and it's stuffed with foie gras, and you immediately might think, oh, my God, this is going to be so pricey. But there's such a small amount of foie gras, so it's not going to really, really break the bank. And if it's for a special occasion, I think it's worth it. I think so, too. I look forward to trying a recipe in the book and then going out to the restaurant and comparing mine mm. to theirs. Well, I think that's a big part of the fun of the book is, uh, even if you don't actually do it, to, to go to the restaurant, sample the dish, and think, oh, I can make this at home, you know, and, uh, and see how you stand up against the creator of the recipe. Well, the book is New York Cook's 100 Recipes from the City's Best Chefs, Joan Krellenstein and Barbara Winkler. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for having us. New York Cook's is in bookstores now. It's published by Sixth and Spring Books. Finally today, 
family recipes are often the most cherished, but they're not always the healthiest. Woodhull Hospital in Brooklyn has overhauled the lard-laden family recipes of some local seniors for a new cookbook called Cooked to Perfection. On the phone with us now to talk about it is Woodhull Executive Director Iris Jimenez-Hernandez. She's joined by Carmen Colazzo, a senior whose once unhealthy recipe is in the cookbook. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Iris, let's start with you. What's different about this cookbook? What I think makes it special is that there are recipes that are cherished recipes that were given to us by seniors from North Brooklyn. We reached out through senior centers um, from Bushwick to Greenpoint, Williamsburg, Bed-Stuy, and we collected some really wonderful recipes, uh, multicultural recipes that have been in families for generations. And so they're cherished and they're important. So, Carmen, tell me about the family recipe that you contributed to the cookbook. Well, I contributed some uh, chicken soup that's been in my family for years, generations after generation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's a very good, very good for yourself, you know. What's special about that recipe? My kids, they like it. And it's low in fat and it's good for your diet. But it wasn't always low in fat, am I right? No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the transformation for this cookbook. So one of the things we did was um, we collected over 100 recipes, Mm -hmm. and we worked with the New York City Technical College with our own dietitians and nutritionists to identify those recipes that were uh, suited to sort of uh, the kind of modifications, whether it was salt or, or sugar, that would make them healthier. Right. And it was based on that criteria that we selected the recipes that are now in the book. And then what we did was have the students from the New York Technical College Culinary Program modify the recipes. But we weren't satisfied with just modifying the recipes and not having um, verification from the authors that they were still tasty and that they still had offered that special feeling to the families and to the individuals who had provided the recipe. So we had a taste test at the school. Mm-hmm. And most of the recipes that were modified, we had the seniors who provided the recipe participate in a tasting to ensure that we kept the essence and the taste of of the dishes. And only those that where we successfully were able to preserve all of those wonderful qualities did we include in the cookbook. So, Carmen, what items have changed in your recipe now? Now they take out the skin of the chicken, which is very good, and less salt. And does the family notice the difference? Oh, no, no. Uh-uh. The seasoning we put on it. And the vegetables that we put on it brings out the flavor more. Iris, that's the funny thing about family recipes. They were created, in many instances, at a time when people didn't bat an eyelash over putting gobs of lard and sugar, oil and salt into their meals. Exactly. What we've discovered over the several recent years, as we were meeting with patients, whether it was through our diabetes collaborative, some of our cardiac patients, that modifying the diet was one of those challenges that, you know, food 
and many recipes, they represent comfort and something that's familiar to most families. Mm-hmm. And there are holidays where we associate certain holidays with particular dishes and just coming around the kitchen table. So it was very, very challenging for many of our patients to modify their diet yes, without some true. guidance. Mm-hmm. And that's why we thought it was an important investment to create this cookbook. Yeah, it's funny. Yes. You can go to the doctor and your doctor tells you you have to change your diet. And then you look at your daily routine and you say, well, how can I do that when these are my favorite foods? Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, I had some of that in my own family. I must say, growing up, I, you uh-huh. know, my grandmother was always challenged when the doctor would tell her to give up certain dishes. And she would come home, and it would be a struggle for her because it was just so associated with Thanksgiving or Christmas or mm-hmm. Easter or, you know, Labor Day, too. you know. Mm-hmm. And so this has just made it a lot easier for everyone. How diverse are the recipes in this cookbook? Well, we have Polish dishes, we have Spanish dishes, Italian dishes. I mean, there is quite a bit of diversity in the cookbook. Yes. Okay. Iris, Carmen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Iris Jimenez-Hernandez is the executive director of Woodhull Hospital in Brooklyn. Carmen Calazzo is a Brooklyn senior whose family recipe for chicken soup was made healthier for a new cookbook called Cooked to Perfection. If you'd like more information about it, give Woodhull a call at 718-963-8537. That's 718-963-8537. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bolarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend. Add a dash of starlight and a dozen roses too. Then let it rise for a hundred years or two. And that's the recipe for making love. It doesn't need sugar, cause it's already sweet. It doesn't need an oven, cause it's got a lot of heat. Just add a dash of kisses to make it all complete. And that's the recipe for making love. And if you've made it right, you'll know it. It's not like anything you've made before. And if you've made it wrong, you'll know it. Cause it won't keep you coming back for more.